Hello everyone and welcome to episode 12 of season 2 of Ignite the Flame Audio. It's the final episode of season 2. So happy to have you here. Thank you to all of those of you who have stuck with us the entire time. Those of you who are just joining us, I would encourage you to go back to season 1, the first episode of season 1, just so the story that's being read to you makes chronological sense. Those of you who are new to season 2, You've come at the very end, so I would encourage you to go right the way back to the beginning so that the story will make sense. For those of you, as I said, who have been here all the way, you know how an episode is broken down where we read, in this case, the final chapter to you. Then we go into the origin of ideas section where we discuss the ideas behind the formation of the chapter. And then we go into the tips of the trade section for those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are authors just looking for that little bit extra. Just to mention a little disclaimer... This chapter does contain reference to moderate gore, so I would advise your best discretion if you are a younger listener or if you're in the vicinity of younger listeners. I would just advise your best discretion because there are a few lines in this chapter which can get pretty graphic. So that's just me forewarning you. Okay, I think that's everything. So let's go ahead and get into it. I'm Wayne Telford and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarcrow, Chapter 12 A Light in the Darkness I beg to differ. We've been there all the way, since you were orphaned by typhoid, calling your parents to an early grave. We were there at your side, mourning with you, as your parents were valued members but like you, they found it difficult to stay true to our ideals. We raised you up, taught you vivisection and anatomy, chemical synthesis, an analysis of blood in addition to criminal activities, hiding the shadows, theatricality and with deception, how to make darkness your ally and how to survive in this underworld. We crafted you and took you in as a brother. Yet when the time came to swear an oath, you betrayed us and refused. I will not worship another. I had already sworn an oath upon my late parents' grave to pledge my allegiance to God, who kept me through this. Yes, so we set you up to see our loyalty to you. You planned for my fall. And died. We tipped the constables that you would be at the facility, and you sacrificed yourself for your brother's escape, just as we had predicted. I was sentenced to imprisonment for one year before hanging by the neck until dirt. Yes, and you found all your underworld contacts whilst there. How to fight, how to psychologically analyse, preparing you all the while for your true potential. Then you had me presumed dead. Yes, we administered a mild sedative and had your pulse slowed enough to have you pronounced dead. Then we released your body to the Thames into fight. As fight would have it, you returned to us again in the hands of Father Thomas Strike. After you had left me horribly disfigured and with blood-stained hands. You sought redemption, so we gave you redemption. and He was to groom you into coming back to us, but instead he filled your head with faith and promise of salvation. A saviour of hope, rather than the ideals we had instructed him to feed you. For this he was dealt with. You're running away and being taken in by Alicia and the Crying Rose brothel. Growing there for four years only to court deadly nightshade and returned to us as you answered our letter, breaking all ties to your former life, including her, leaving Bloodsnitch through vengeance, not being enough, 
and joining Black Street only to leave in a foolish quest for a noble cause, finding the outcasts and learning the part of the vigilante to form your own justice. But it still wasn't enough, was it? It didn't make the changes you wanted for your city. By the age of 26, you left for Oxford University to study anatomy and medicine to become a forensic pathologist. Although we never did find young Ichabod Crane, something about leaving for America on a ship headed for Sleepy Hollow. Never did find out what became of him, but I digress. You were trained, and soon became a professional, of identifying the dead from mere remnants. Father Drake taught me well. He allowed me to practice post-mortems on the bodies whose families did not arrive to collect them. But he saw something else, didn't he? He witnessed my curiosity. Yes. You began to vivisect them and try to understand them, much to his disapproval. No, to his curiosity. Hence why he urged me to go on to Oxford. Ah, yes. Then you tried to employ such methods at several morgues, much to their disapproval. And later... You attempted to psychologically analyse patients in three, four, four, four different asylums with a process which encourages those falsely deemed criminally insane to vice their fears with water torture, various other methodologies and devices all to invoke fear so as to obtain a confession. I wish to seek justice and they could not understand, but we do. Hence why we opened a door to Scotland Yard and invited you in. Set up an asylum of your own where you would be left to do as you pleased, so long as it did not interfere with our plans, and it worked for a while. My curiosity was inspired. Yes, this murder caused something to rise up within you and investigate. Then why try and encourage me? So as we could direct you, you were to accept it was Jackal as the rest of London, and leave it at that, but you wouldn't. I had to discover the truth, indeed. And now you've become a thorn which needs to be removed for our survival may well depend on it. But now we have nothing to fear. All of your witnesses are dead. What? Oh yes. While you've been playing with your soul's two halves, I've methodically eliminated each one in turn. Sedgwick? Impaled by a foreign weapon. An accident, I'm sure. Mrs. Amos? An unfortunate collapse down the stairs, hitting her head along the way. At least that is the conclusion I would come to by the pool of blood. Mr. Biggs. An unfortunate case of suicide. Being a partner of such a worldwide company must have its demons too. Murderer! On the contrary, Scarecrow. I freed them from a life of fear and pain. You should be thanking me, and your blind sergeant. Well, you already know of London's crying rose brothel being burned to the ground because of a careless dropping of a cigarette. At least, that's the report I followed to McLean, the juddering fool. Your end is near. Surrender now, and you may be spared the noose. Giving me the choice, Scarecrow. I would think you would wish to kill me rather than see me hang, if not for your own revenge, for nightshades. Silence! You have no right to speak her name! You know, of all the trollops I've indulged over the years, she was the most convincing. It was almost as if she offered herself on a silver platter, even before payment, that is. I said silence! I thrust my gloved hand into his neck injecting him with five hypodermic needles, all filled with psilocybin, enough to render him a fearful wreck of a man, with no mind or sense of reality. As it takes effect, he begins to cry out in fear. What is happening? Where am I? No. No, it wasn't me. It's not my fault. I circle him, and watch my pet work its dark magic around his mind, pulling it apart, thread by thread. 
Tell me what you fear, William. Wait. I know what you fear. The same as Sedgwick. You fear loss of control. Loss of importance. You fear Bloodsnitch betraying you as they did me. For failing them. Silence. I will not be forgotten. I will not. Ah. His mind begins to shift and turn toward paranoia and aggression, charging into the walls and beating his head against their surface, the floor, and all other furniture around him. He turns his attentions toward me once more, and pulls a blade with all intention of murder once again, only to be silenced once and for all by Sergeant McCline's revolver, as the shot echoes through his sternum, piercing his right lung and spurting blood from the wound as he falls to my feet. Inspector Moore rolls to his right and urges me closer with his hand. Naively, I follow, but to my surprise, his intentions are genuine. You always file to see the larger picture. There is another agent in the constabulary, hiding amongst us for far longer than I, and he's responsible for this, for the assassination attempt on our beloved monarch, for everything. Who is he? More! As my voice elevates, he replies, Finally, I've won. Oh, what sweet serenity I will find amongst the fines. See you on the other side, Scarecrow. I'm afraid we will be on opposite sides, brother. As I close his eyes and lay his head down, Sergeant McCline asks, What did he say, Scarecrow? Doctor, nothing of importance, McCline. The fact is, it's over. And now it must disappear. The time has come to leave this world once and for all. What do you mean? I will return to my asylum and Bloodsnitch will follow claiming me in the process. How will Bloodsnitch know of your asylum? Because Inspector Moore has already told them. It is the reason I sent my ravens away. I suspected he would murder my witnesses to cover his tracks. So let me come with you and face them. I'm sorry, but this is a path I must walk alone. Stubborn till the end, and if you do survive... I will not! I wish to return home, McCline. So, you're going to end it all by dying to their hands... If they were there at the beginning, then they may as well be there at the end. But there are more cases to be solved. Cases for a greater mind than mine. I am a broken mirror, Sergeant, and it's time to piece it back together and lose my past once and for all. Very well, Scarecrow. Dr. Lantern, it was a pleasure. As he reaches out his hand and shakes mine firmly, I reply, Likewise, Sergeant. It was an honour to serve, but I fear we will be enemies should I return. What do you mean by that? I have murdered several criminals, Sergeant. And even though it was for king and country, it was no official war, making me a murderer. And this time I will hang by the neck until I am dead. Well then, I pray I never find you. Good luck, Sergeant. May we meet in the next life. You can count on it, Scarecrow. Count on it, lad. I turn away and take my leave summoning what little strength had remained to return to my asylum, where I would face my past, but not to perish, only to disappear, so no agent of Bloodsnitch could pursue me any longer. I walked through the streets filled with hope and change, as the evil had been rid from them, children asking after the Scarcrow and his tale of leading the constabulary to victory, whilst their parents believed Bloodsnitch twisted tales shown in the newspaper, outlining Jackal as the enemy of the state, and the murderer behind all of these crimes, sending his reputation and memory further into disrepute. 
how the truth was twisted and corrupted under McCline's eyes by one of his own. Little did I know. Reaching the asylum, I closed the door, and all the curtains are drawn shut with darkness filling the room. I show no fear, and mention, No need to be afraid. I've been expecting you since opening the compass left by Inspector Moore. A figure walks from the shadows, and pulls one of the curtains, too. Good afternoon. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm James Flint. I know who you are, and why you have come. Bloodsnitch's dead stain your hands, immortal one. So, you can see others' abilities, only in gaseous forms. The dead, and how they come to be. But lately I've witnessed visions filled with gold shards, and lives much like that in the compass. Yeah, little gifts left to you by a higher authority. What do you want from me, Mr. Flint? Call me James, and it is not I, it's we. We. Yes, we. A higher class voice emanates from the rear of the morgue, accompanied by several archaic sounds of cracking and insect-like movement. Who are you? The large form begins to shift, and I realize it is only a shadow, revealing a gentleman adorned in a cape, with hood, gloves of technology with exceptional design, and battleware revolvers and blades, the likes of which would merit an assassin of sorts. A leather apparel with chains and spikes entombs his body with a scarf much like mine, concealing his face. Show your face, I order, but am met with opposition. You first, he states, trying to interrogate my intention to be there, as I remove my mask and my attire reverts back to that of a humble doctor, placing my gauntlets back into my black bag, the only item left behind by the ravens. Hold on to them, you may need them further. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Detective Isaac Jackal, at your service. The figure of mystery unveils his head, and pulls the scarf from his face. A clean-shaven look with defined features, eyes of dark brown, bearing both compassion and justice. Well-shaped hair at neck length with black coloration. A voice which was wise and yet dark with white skin. An overall slim figure, with defined musculature in the upper and lower body. Dr. Lantern, pleasure to finally meet you. The pleasure is all mine, Dr. Lantern. Now, to why we are here. Are you prepared for war? I'm listening, detective. Call me Jackal. War between us and Bloodsnitch. Well, what do you say? Before I can answer, the windows are put through, and glass bottles filled with the yellow gas are hurtled in to the room, drowning out all visibility in its burning awe. Jackal, now may be a good time to employ your gift. James pulls his revolver and prepares for the battle to come. Wait, the time will come, my friend. Doctor, already there, Jekyll. I place the mask upon my head once again, covering me in a dark overcoat with a hood of black velvet. Leather shoulders and black velvet arms, up to the wrists lined with bladed tips, and leather cuffs over my gauntlets now placed over both arms, with a blade accompanying my gas canister on the left, and several daggers tipped with psilocybin extract alongside the metallic limb of hypodermic needles, mirroring my own hand. The glass orbs now return to me with mixtures of all chemical weaponry, and my revolver, now black and silver in color, with an orange end to the barrel. The tail of my overcoat thronged with spikes and leather lining the exterior. Witnessing my transformation, the curtains are torn from their walls, and light pierces every corner of the room, as it is closely followed by several agents of Bloodsnitch. Cloaked in masks and hoods, only one intention. Search and destroy. Two enter and are met with gunfire. 
and James lets loose and shoots them with pinpoint accuracy before taking cover behind a corpse, resting upon one of the benches. Jacko runs toward a group of four and jumps into the air, unlike anything human I had ever witnessed before, his body torquing and snapping as it begins to shift. His head splits into two, with his lower jaw separating and gnashing jaws thronged with curved teeth appear whilst his upper face gains armor and appears almost spider-like. His back bursts as his thoracic to his lumbar vertebrae extrude from his prehistoric body. Armor plating erupts from his skin and jagged spikes protrude across its entirety. Long fine hairs pulsate from its edge, moving in relation to changes in air pressure, with his appendages multiplying to three pairs of armored segmented arms. Clawed hands lead to spiny forearms, which give way to bladed shoulders, reminiscent of an arthropod. His body lengthens and broadens from the hips upward, increasing in size by almost three times, giving a four-foot width of the shoulders. The legs undergo a similar transformation as the arms, only the feet are bladed with sickle-shaped claws, with larger coverage as they strike the ground. A tail lashes from his posterior, thronged with arched blades and spines into a scorpion-like arch, each segment lined with minute spines, between larger conical spikes, tapering into a central sting of several interlocking blades, much like that of a wasp. Once his transformation is complete, his color changes from that of skin to black and brown armor and dark spikes. Eyes of red and purple and crimson, interior membranes between each segment. As I struggle to witness all I see, he proceeds to eviscerate one agent with a swipe of his arm, middle left, and grasps another, crushing his head between his lower jaw segments as the blood spills over the floor and the body is thrown to the wall behind. The tail grasps the third, plunging through his torso and cleaving upward, claiming his head as it is torn from his cadaver. The fourth screams for mercy, but all Jackal states is, Mercy is for the righteous. In a deep, harmonic voice, resembling a chorus of monks singing in unison, whilst in a screaming pitch unheard to many, he grips the fourth by the head and clenches his fist, unleashing the contents of his skull to the surrounding walls and pouring internal organs over the remaining members. As I had witnessed the other two, I felt it was time to play my part as I state, My turn and pull my revolver from its sheath, firing two rounds to claim the first, tossing a glass orb filled with chlorine toward the second. The glass shatters over his face and releases the vial over him, burning as it moves. The gas claims several others as they begin to bleed internally and fall to the ground, coughing and drowning in their own fluids. I thrust my hypodermic needles into several more, releasing the effects of psilocybin to its full effect, causing them to attack each other and kill those they once saw as brothers. Something I could relate to. James asks, Doctor, what are you doing with that? As I raise a glowing green orb filled with nitroglycerin and launch it at the window, exposing it to the sun. Watch, James. Follows a massive explosion which engulfs the entire front of the room, flushing the inside with smoke, clouding each of our escapes as more blood snitch agents pour in to where others had fallen, replacing them as the heads of the Hydra. As we leave the rear entrance, I witness a central leader with a hood adorned with antlers and one beside him, of a female figure whom I felt I would meet again when the time was right. Upon following James and Jekyll, his shape takes on that of a man once more, and he turns to me, saying, 
As you can see, Dr. Lantern, you are not alone on the gifted front. As we fall into the side of a carriage and scurry away from the remnants of my home, I answer, Scarcrow. Call me Scarcrow. Very well, Scarcrow. I suppose the question I wish to ask is, what is your answer? And without thought to what just occurred, I agree. I'm in. Very well. The compass. Do you still have it? Yes. I keep it hidden. Excellent. We have one final task for you. Go to this address and leave it there. All will be revealed in time. Trust us. Very well. I trust you. Very well. Welcome to Blood Symphony. The pleasure is all mine. Jekyll. James. I take my leave, and Jekyll leaves the address of where to meet after I had completed the task they had set me. I exit the carriage doors and walk through the darkened streets of London, part of something larger than myself, and yet this time it felt right, as though I belonged, and having not known them very long, I felt I knew them for years, and hoped to know them for years to come. I arrive at 21 Fleet Street, with a grand oak tree towering over the house, concealing a generally well-kept exterior of white and beige paint, the roof tiled and windows clear, curtains hanging proud, and cleanliness being promised, throughout the house with not even a speck of dust upon any external surface, the gravel path neat and tidy and no sign of any weeds. Employing my techniques once more, I prise the door open and move to where I had been instructed to leave it. As I pull it from my chest pocket, it reveals to me one last message, a revelation so horrific I can barely contain my thirst for vengeance. Upon a sudden the door is broken down, and constables rush to my side, grabbing my arms and wrapping me in layer upon layer of chains with a lock at its center. Scarecrow, you are under arrest for the murder of one Inspector Moore. Take him away, lads. A constable hearkens in a harsh, grumbled voice, ushering me into the care of two guards built with physiques to rival boulders. Placing me into the carriage, I witness the constable depositing the compass in a hidden location within the room, almost knowing my intentions. After receiving a letter, the driver heralds my location and begins to cart me off, with only my compass to hold close. I push its button, releasing its complex wheels and spinning plates, revealing one last memory. As the compass opens, it shows my leaving and the telephone ringing, with McCline answering to state these final words. Yes, Mr. Potter. I understand. Just let me hear them. Are they all right? Yes, I understand. I will do whatever you ask. Just don't hurt them. Yes, sir. I see. It will be done. Consider Scarecrow deceased, sir. Long live Bloodsnitch. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we take the chapter that's just been read to you and break it down, discussing the ideas that led to the formation of the chapter itself. So getting started off, we discover in the early part of this chapter how Bloodsnitch has been instrumental in the grooming of Dr. Lantern and subsequently his alter ego, Scarcrow, and how they've been present throughout his life, orchestrating his near-death experience, having him arrested, having him meet the underworld contacts that he comes into contact with, all the way up to him getting his own asylum and eventually a chance to work this case. It just goes to show the extent to which this group has had their hands wrapped around Dr. Lantern's life and how instrumental they've been since the beginning. And it just goes to show the complexity of this group and how patient they are in their willingness to wait 
as I said, grooming him all the while for fulfilling the destiny that they have planned for him. The second point is we notice a reverence held between Scarcrow and Dr. Lantern toward Inspector Moore, despite his betrayal. Dr. Lantern still looks to him as a mentor, as a friend, and even as a brother during his time in Bloodsnitch. And we see this reverence come through toward the end as he refers to him as brother after he's been killed and he closes his eyes. Now this shows a reverence towards the dead in such a way that it shows that as a character, Dr. Lantern and Scarcrow have come full circle. They're no longer holding this vengeful attitude. They're no longer holding this anger toward those who betrayed them. But now they're sort of seeing them in a new light, and it just shows that this character has now come full circle. The character has finally evolved, as we've mentioned before. The third point is we're introduced to characters from the previous novel in James Flint and Isaac Jekyll from A Light in the Mist. Any of you who have gone through season one, you'll recognize them from that story. And this is obviously a follow-on from A Light in the Mist, so it makes sense that these two characters would show their faces again. But it's nice to see them come back into the story and it now connects those two novels and even sets the tone for future novels in this series. The fourth point is sort of a follow-on from that, where we discover that Jekyll has unlocked Hyde without needing a vial. Now, this is where it's different to the original Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde novel, as in the case Henry Jekyll needed to drink a vial to bring Hyde out, so to speak, to unlock that alternate side of himself. In this story, Jekyll doesn't so much need to do that. It's more a genetic thing. So it's something that he can unlock at whim. And we're introduced to that in the end of this novel. And it's definitely a theme that we're going to see reoccurring in future novels within this series. The final point is that we're left on a cliffhanger. We're left with this scene where Scarcrow is sent to a house by James and Jekyll. He's then apprehended by constables. And McCline basically has him escorted to a carriage and then he's taken to an unknown destination. And then we have a phone call between McCline and this mystery character by the name of Potter. And he declares that Scarcrow can be considered deceased. And that basically sets a nice cliffhanger leading into the third installment of the Blood Symphony series. And it's just an interesting way that you can use this writing technique to draw your readers especially into carrying on with the series because they want to know what happens next. Okay, that about wraps it up for this section. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. This is the section of the podcast where we discuss, as it says, tips of the trade. For those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are already authors, just looking for that little bit extra. So concluding this four-part series that we've been discussing over the past couple of episodes on the writing process we're now going to bring it full circle in the production of an ending so concluding your story now first of all there are several ways in which to create an ending but the majority of ways in which an ending is constructed depends on what you want to achieve with the end product of the story so for example something to think about when you're constructing the end of your story is do you want it to come to a resolution. You know, do you want your story to end on a happy ending or do you want something that leaves a lasting impression? That is something you consider when you want to conclude a story. If you're thinking about leaving it on a cliffhanger, however, how are you going to leave enough intrigue or mystery to make that reader 
wish for more. They're going to want to carry on. They're going to want to see what happens next. You know, it's all about leaving part of the story behind at the end of this story to have something to pick up in the next story, something to expand upon, something to then almost like a question to be answered. Now, I would advise that if you are thinking of writing a series, you don't necessarily have to have every story end on a cliffhanger, but it does help to use the cliffhanger ending to draw readers into that next book, especially if you're using a part one and a part two, because you want those two novels to be connected more than just by the title. If it's stories of differing titles and it's not necessarily known that they're part of the same series, again, the cliffhanger is a good method to use to connect those two novels together. But if you wish to bring your story to a resolution, what you want to do by the end of your story, again, there's no right way to do this. It's whatever you feel comfortable with being the author yourself. What I try to do by the end of the story is if I'm having my character evolve, as in the case of this story, I have them reach that final point. You know, the the character has come full circle. They've done what I wanted them to do throughout the story. So the character that wasn't known is now well known. They've gone from being a nothing to a hero. They've gone from being angry and bitter and vengeful to being more open-minded, more forgiving, more understanding. So the character in that sense has come full circle. It doesn't have to just be one character as well. You can have it happen with all the characters or you can have something, as in the case if you're writing a further novel to that series, you can have those characters expanded throughout further novels. So maybe with some characters you'll have a resolution, other characters you might not you might have them only get halfway. And it's like a progressive journey that they, they have throughout the novels, throughout the series. It's some, that's another thing to bear in mind when considering this. But for the most part, if you want to resolve this story as in you don't want to carry on this novel, this is a one-time novel, then what you want to have really is all your characters come full circle. The storyline is summed up. There's no loose ends. You know, if, if you have a murder mystery, you've caught the murderer and justice has been served. You know, they're not still on the run. They haven't got away. Or if they have, that's where the story ends. You know, you don't pick it up in a in a future novel. Just the same as if you're having a battle between a hero and a bad guy. The bad guy or the antagonist is defeated or gotten rid of. You know, you bring the story to a conclusion. Whether that ending is satisfactory will depend largely on your readers. But I would advise you to write an ending that you wish to write. You being the creator, the author, the ending is constructed how you want it to be constructed. And as in the case with most endings, not everyone's going to agree with the way you've ended a book. Some people don't like cliffhangers. Some people prefer happy endings as opposed to brutal reality. But it really depends on your creative process. And it's just something to bear in mind that one of the all-time greats, Stephen King, one of the main criticisms of his books is that his readers don't approve of his endings. I don't know why. I like his endings, but I suppose it depends on the particular person and their tastes. And I know that King's works, he's not one for having things end on a happy ending. He's more of a realist. You know, his attitude is, I'm going to write things as they happen. You know, it's, it's not my philosophy to always give you what you want, because that's not what life is actually like and I respect his work more for that but then that's my own opinion you may agree you may not that's your choice as in the case of your ending as well it's also your choice you can have a happy ending or you can have brutal honesty 
really it's up to you as the creator, as we're always trying to encourage you. When it all boils down to it, it's your decision. But all these things are worth bearing in mind when you are creating your ending to bring it to a point where you either want to finalize it and have it end at this book or whether you want to carry it on in a particular series. Okay, that about wraps it up for this section. And that's about it for episode 12. Thank you very much, guys, for tuning in. As always, it's a real privilege to bring these episodes to you. And I hope you've enjoyed season two all the way through as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. Of course, we'll endeavour to include any of the links that have been mentioned in this episode down below, so be sure to check them out. Right now, we just want to take some time to promote, for the final time, project that we've been promoting throughout Season 2, known as Top Dog Studios. It's a painting and mural company run by a personal friend of mine, Callum Young, who specialises in designing painting and murals for various different brands. If that sounds like something you or someone else that you know would be interested in, be sure to go over to Top Dog Studios' website, That's www.topdogstudios.co.uk. There you'll find access to where you can put your contact details, your budget. You can tell Callum a little bit about the project and you can give him the timescale in which you want to complete it. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, having your brand or, or someone you know's brand represented through a painting or a mural, some form of graphic design, be sure to pop on over to that website and tell Callum about the project and I'm sure he'd be interested in hearing from you. Just on a little side note, we've received a couple of comments from various listeners asking where you can find these books that are being read to you and that will be included in the link below. There'll be a link to Novum's website and also Amazon where you can go ahead and you can purchase a paper copy or ebook, whatever is best for you. But through those links, they are available for purchase. I don't usually promote our works like this. I appreciate your patronage, whether you're just casually listening or whether you are purchasing our books. I mean, as an author, it does help us, but it's a pleasure either way. I appreciate you listening to this podcast just as much as people that go out and buy our books. But it's just responding to the comments that we've received, just to show that your voices are listened to. And I appreciate your inquiries. You know, as an author, it's always humbling to have people ask after your work. So thank you for that. Okay, guys, I really hope you've enjoyed season two. Whatever you're doing today, give it 100%. And I hope you have an amazing day and a fantastic week. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you next time.